I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 76 for December 2018. Our last podcast of the year. I'm Duncan, and 1976 had uh, Stallone's Rocky, Sidney LeMay's Network, Scorsese's Taxi Driver, Ingmar Bergman's Face to Face, Bertolucci's 1900, Redford's All the President's Men, Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, De Palma's Carrie, Hitchcock's final film Family Plot, and John Wayne's final film The Shootist, Elia Kazan's The Last Tycoon, John Schlesinger's The Marathon Man, Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth, Eastwood's The Outlaw Josie Wales and The Enforcer, Barbara Streisand's version of A Star Is Born, and two childhood favourites of mine, Bad News Bears and Bugsy Malone. Wow. And one film that tortured my childhood, The Omen. Yeah. yeah. That's a great year. It is, yeah. Do you also know that Jodie Foster made five films in 1976? No way. Yeah. Freaky Friday, A Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, Echoes of Summer, which is the only one I've never heard of. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Bugsy Malone and Taxi Driver. That's incredible. That's nuts. That's uh, the work rate of the girl, eh? Yeah, but also, you know, especially Freaky Friday, Bugsy Malone and Taxi Driver, like, they're still watched, probably. I mean, yeah. obviously Taxi Driver is, oh, but yeah, the other yeah, totally. as well. Man, it, it seems like almost overworked, Yeah, I would have thought, for a child. <laughs> for 13 years old. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the labour laws were a bit a before. Little, a little off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so look, uh, as Duncan said, Carrie and the Omen were the horror-heavy hitters of 76. The first, a solid Brian De Palma film that kicked off an endless cycle of Stephen King adaptations. And the second, a wonderfully crafted satanic horror film that kicked off a seemingly endless series of schoolyard discussions about how that one guy really died in that one scene. Uh, maybe the dude who gets his head chopped off, you know, and it's covered by five different cameras. Or maybe the guy who gets cut in half by an out-of-control lift in the second film. Or maybe it's the poor woman attacked by ravens who then stumbles into the path of an oncoming truck. Yeah. Um, I remember somebody arguing that that was the one. She really, like, they, the ravens were planned, but the truck was just next. Yeah. So. I just love how you could just basically make snuff films back in the 70s and then just release them and they just become lauded as... Well, apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And snuff sequels too. It's like, ah, we're doing it again. And, and, you know, there's no internet. We didn't know any better. We just had to trust our schoolyard chums, Yeah. I vividly remember that one with the uh, the dude getting decapitated by the pane of glass. Yeah, that was the one most frequently cited, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Although it's clearly just uh, you know a mannequin head flying. Oh, off. totally. <laughs> and it's like five cameras rolling. I mean, that, that can't <laughs> be an accident. So what's the idea of keeping this? What a cruel through. thing to do to his family too, and just release it, and you yeah. know, for your consideration at the Oscars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, it was also the year of the superior Canadian haunted house flick burnt offerings. With the star power of Oliver Reed and Betty Davis, mm-hmm. uh, love that film. It was the year of the alarming Euro horror "Who Can Kill a Child," which I've talked about before. Polanski's *The Tenant* and the woefully underseen *The Witch Who Came from the Sea*. But the film that kind of stood out for me when I was looking at horror films from '76 was *Massacre at Central High*. I think I've only really vague memories of seeing. Uh, it was some sort of proto slasher, which has a lot of kills that I have seared into my memory. Uh, there's a fall into an empty swimming pool. Uh, a sabotage hang glider that careens into power lines. But what's most striking to me is that the killer, a vengeful college kid, starts out as the hero, uh, taking out a trio, a trio of brutal bullies, but becomes the villain when he and some other former victims become the new bad guys in the power vacuum right. uh, left by the original oppressors. Pretty heady stuff, I think, for the 70s, you know, for a low-budget 70s horror film. Yeah. 
and I'd really like to see it again, but uh, it's so hard to find. Yeah, especially predating Halloween. You know, that, that kind of revival of slasher. Yeah, you know, yeah. Of. And it's uh, not quite a slasher in some respects. Mm. It almost seems like an action film or, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I can remember some of those kills. Like the guy on the diving board who's diving in the dark because he couldn't find the light switch. Oh, and then and then just as he dives, someone turns on the light switch, so he sees himself <laughs> diving into an empty pool. Oh, that's pretty brutal. It's pretty cruel, eh? <laughs> So the idea of some really patient killer draining all the water out of a pool, that would be great. Yeah, I have to feel <laughs> that the pool was like, you know, um, under refurbishment and nobody had told the high school <laughs> <Yeah>. diving champ. <laughs> yeah, no idea. He liked diving at night, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So Simon, what have you been watching? Well, a few different bits and pieces, but the film I want to talk about is, uh, of course, Creed 2. Mm-hmm. So Creed gets a sequel that feels like a Rocky sequel to me, with all the good and bad that that kind of entails. It lacks that something special that made Creed such a breath of fresh air when I saw it. It doesn't somehow make those tropes new and fresh and exciting all over, but it does take them out for another run around the block, and that seems, you know, fine to me. Um, Jordan, Thompson, uh, and Stallone are once again so watchable, but there's nothing in here as riveting as that single-take fight that thrusts you breathlessly straight into the middle of the action in the way that the first Creed did. Mm-hmm. Or the reworking of the Detroit training scene complete with motorbikes in Ryan Coogler's version. I mean, they were such standout moments for me. Um, this film also spends a really long time between fights as we dive into the lives of Apollo and Bianca and see Rocky himself pushed kinder to the edges of the story. But how you respond to that will depend on how much you care about those characters and how much you just want to spend time with them. And I kind of imagine for most viewers that's not why they bought a ticket. It's all fine, and the fights themselves are brutal and really well-staged but as I said earlier, not particularly fresh. And there is a required stirring training montage, which I enjoyed, this time in the desert with another reworking of the classic theme to get like old school purists like ourselves, so kind of all like a Twitter. Um, and that's the thing with Creed 2. It's a solid Rocky film. It could slot between Rocky 2 and 3 effortlessly. You know, it feels right. like in that time period, in that zone. And maybe that's what we can and should expect as the Creed franchise kind of rolls on, as it surely will a succession of workmanlike films elevated by the occasional standout and maybe featuring the odd cheeseball entry as well. Yeah. Um, though apparently director Stephen Capel Jr. had an onset agreement to call out any moment that leaned too hard towards the corn, you know? Right. Um, I did, however, love the treatment of the villain in Creed II, uh, Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, who was given credible depth and motivation and it's a pleasure to see Lundgren back. And while part of me wished for a little more from his reappearance... I actually think they were wise to use them sparingly mm-hmm. um, and let the audience fill in the blanks, which seems a pretty rare choice nowadays. Yeah. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, I just can't wait for the robot that turned up in with Rocky Four. Oh, yeah, three. yeah, yeah, yeah. I which one it's in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Be they great. actually end up having to go to Russia to fight um, Victor Drago in this film as well. Oh, nice. Which is amazing. And there's even a scene where, like, you know, he's getting booed at the beginning and then the Russians are cheering him at the end. Yeah. And it doesn't feel as heavy-handed as that sounds because yeah. obviously they're trying not to be that sort of Rocky Four vibe. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly elements of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny in the uh, the Russia-American relationship, I guess, back in 1985 or whenever mm. that was, seemed so cut and dry, Cold War. Whereas yep. nowadays it's a little murkier, isn't it? So, oh, yeah, know, the yeah, kind of yeah. implications of, of trying to win the Cold War back then, and now it's like, well, what are you actually trying to achieve? Yeah, and I actually think that works really well for um, the Drago character, you know? Yeah. That sort of, he's a man who's really lost his place because things aren't clear, and, you know, mm. he had this humiliation years ago, you know? I, I like that, and I like that that they went with that because it sounds yep. like it potentially could have been terrible, bringing Dolph Lundgren back, and... Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it worked quite nicely. It's just not as... 
like I say, it just doesn't have that freshness and that um, energy that the first Creed has. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how about you? What have you been uh, watching? The film I wanted to talk about was uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, cool. So Netflix seems like an obvious place for the Coen brothers to gravitate toward. They've always been separated from the mainstream, never set the box office alight, really. Their biggest award successes have been aggressively idiosyncratic work like Fargo and the nihilistically faithful interpretation of Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. And when they won the Best Director Oscars for that film, they said, uh, thank you for letting us play in our corner of the sandpit. And uh, now Netflix has become their new sandpit, a perfect one where the platform doesn't even really care about box office weekends or ticket sales, even though this did get a very, very limited release. To say that the Coens are masters of their art form is redundant by now, but the Ballad of Buster Scruggs reminds us of it, and it's kind of a bit of a branch out for them. Although thematically it covers similar ground to much of their previous work, humans finding their place in the universe or failing to find meaning at all, shoulders shrugging at the brutal results of the cosmos's cruel jokes. Tim Blake Nelson's titular gunslinger, Buster Scruggs, starts the film with a song and generating plenty of laugh as he walks through a cloud of dust, engaging in monologue across monosyllabic malcontents determined to shoot him within seconds of meeting him. Soon after, we leap to James Franco and Stephen Root's Sergio Leone-inspired bank robber tale. And then the show-stopping Liam Neeson story that is brutal in its cold, satirical simplicity. Before taking cues from John Huston's epic the treasure of the Sierra Madre, and delivering a wondrous Tom Waits performance as a lone gold prospector tapping into an untouched paradise's natural riches. One of the more accessible tales is Zoe Kazan's gentle love story with a trail cowboy leading pilgrims to the promised land, while the finale offers a nod to John Ford's stagecoach as two bounty hunters accompany a coach full of opals through descending darkness. Hidden amongst all these stories is cruel irony, swift violence, hearty laughs, and one hell of a last stand against marauding Native Americans that is expertly commentated by a character who's in the thick of it. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is produced with the clarity of vision, literary edge, and philosophical musings we've come to expect from the Coen brothers over the last 30 years. And when the history of cinema is told, we'll realise how lucky we are to be here, seeing these films premiering the cinema for the first time, and now on the small screen. So uh, it's kind of needless to say it's, uh, you know, it's, the Coen Brothers, so you want to see it. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's really good, and especially yourself being a bit of a Western connoisseur. Yeah, I love them. The cinematography of this is amazing. Some of the production that they must have gone through being quite a challenge. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really impressive, and every story is very different in, um, in its own way yep. uh, and tone, and even in what it's trying to say. And, again, it's one of those films that it's very possible to read through it and look at. American society and society in general. But yeah, it's a really good good, uh, good journey. I think you'll enjoy it. Apparently this 80-year-old grandmother was watching your Scrooge promo last night and she just, she just keeled over. It scared her to death. This is terrific. I knew that ad worked. You can't buy publicity like this. So here's no comps. This is uh, the part of the show where we go and watch a film that's on new release and uh, review it for you guys. And this is our last... Film of the year, so yeah. we thought we'd go out in a high, um, and we watched Robin Hood, starring Taron Egerton, Jamie Foxx, Ben Mendelsohn, Eve Hewson, and Jamie Dornan, written by Ben Chandler and David James Kelly, and directed by Otto Bathurst. When things were rotten, in the time of, we're not really sure, basically, mm. before cell phones and hashtags, an English nobleman, Robin of Loxley, has his love affair with a fair maiden, Marion, cut short when he is drafted into the Crusades. On his return to home, he finds his lands controlled by the tyrannical Sheriff of Nottingham, 
So under the guidance of a former enemy called John, Robin decides to fight back, steal from the rich and give to the poor beneath the disguise of a hood. Mm. Uh, well, I'm afraid all is not good in the hood. <laughs> because this is an absolute pre-Christmas turkey of a film. Is it not? It is. Yeah, it's well, we are. I was, I was really hoping that, you know, what? that you'd love it so that I could get, you know. Oh, oh we, we could fight over it? Yeah, but no. <laughs> we saw this together. Now, we don't often do that, folks. We often um, go off on our own and come back. And we never yeah. talk about it. But, I mean, we, we <laughs> looked at each other once or twice. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we haven't gone and watched the film together for quite a while. Uh, Mandy. Mandy was Mandy, the, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. But it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, no. yeah. It it starts badly with a long voiceover narration and a, telling us in various ways to forget what we know. So basically softening this up, it seems, for the desecration to come. I think that's why the voiceover is there, eh? Yeah. Like, it's, I hate voiceover narration anyway, particularly when it's just at an opening just to get us into a film, you know, yeah. and serves no real purpose. And I, who's doing the voiceover narration? Is it him? Well, I... I think it's the, the it's Fry Tuck, right? Is it? Oh, well, is it Fry Tuck? I assumed that it was Fry Tuck because at first I thought, okay, this is Robin Hood, right? But I think later on doesn't. I think at the end of it, it was Fry Tuck. That's what talking. The, yeah, that's the feeling I got. Right, but I could be wrong. I, yeah, because it's not clear who's giving that. No, no, it's not clear, which is annoying as well. But he's talking. Otherwise, he's talking about the th- in the third person about himself. Yeah, just it's there to lessen our expectations. It's there to go. Okay, okay, look, yeah. this isn't going to be good. This isn't going no. to be true to what the story you've heard, yeah. or true to any sense of an actual historical setting. Uh, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, but I also kind of hope, for the sake of the film, that it's not him. Otherwise, it's just him talking about how awesome he is. You know what I mean? Like right. the, the opening is like, you know, if he was just a a robber, then his name wouldn't have you know lasted through yeah. the centuries. And you're like, well. Okay, so you better not be talking about yourself because it's pretty arrogant. <laughs> no, no, uh, yeah, I realise that. I think I just read somewhere, and perhaps incorrectly, that it was his voice. Yeah, um, and that seemed weird. I think people say. just assumed that it was, but yeah, yeah. I, I think I got to the end of it and I went, I realised, oh, I think this is Frytux. Look, um, also, as long as we're talking terrible stuff at the top, that draft notice. Like, oh. I mean, I know a little bit about history and medieval history, <laughs> and I know you didn't go off to the crusade by getting drafted and having yeah. a sign pinned to your door that said in English letters, draft notice. Yeah. That feels a little bit, a little yeah. bit off. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe he was uh, because he was a lord. You know, he was right. a, he was the lord of the manor or whatever. Maybe they made an exception on his case. Yeah, and then the holy war, eh? So it's basically: yeah. have you seen Assassin's Creed? <laughs> and have you seen Hurt Locker? It's that. Yeah, all the English sneaking through city ruins with their bows drawn as if they were rifles, being picked off by Arabs armed with. Machine gun crossbows. Mm. Yeah. It's just awful. Robin Hood is certainly a, a modern film in that it wants to show like PTSD, Muslim versus Christian holy wars and their battlefield crimes, Antifa versus right-wing riots in the streets, a cast of churches, corrupt child molesters, and even attempts to excuse the Sheriff of Nottingham's cruelty by casting him as an abuser, merely repeating a cycle of violence he was born into. Uh, but the film stops short of anything approaching Me Too, maybe a bit more You Too. As uh, Bono Jr., Eve Hewson's Maid Marian, is the only female character in the film. Yeah, that's a bit of a shocker, eh? And even takes a backward step of having Jamie Foxx's life, family, and country be torn apart. So naturally, he's motivated to help a good-looking, rich, white guy in a faraway land. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
The Legend of Bagavance. Yeah, the Bechdel test getting failed. Yeah. Pretty, pretty thoroughly. Oh, totally. Oh, you know, but the also, you oh, know. the Magical Negro. Yeah, the Magical Negro, just that as well, just to throw into the mix. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. a hot mess, all right. You know, something I didn't realise until afterwards, like, because I was talking about the action before, is mm. there are no sword fights in this film. Yeah. Nobody draws, I mean, there's, I can I can remember one sword being used, mm. but not in a duel. Mm. And um, I really miss that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to see, you know, it, if you're old enough to have seen Errol Flynn's like athletic, graceful duel against Guy of Gisborne played by master swordsman Basil Rathbone in the 38 film, uh, it's just really disappointing. And it's disappointing from a viewer's point of view because I'm now starting to remember the last time I saw a good sword fight on screen. It's like a lost art, eh? Yeah, well, I mean, especially in these days of uh, lightsaber battles, you'd think that you'd just be right in there, right? you think you'd be... Yeah, but, I mean, I can't remember... Yeah, it, it, to be fair, that was pretty. The, the lightsaber fight in um, Last Jedi was pretty good. It was one of my standout moments from that mm. film. But but sword fights in general, the old school sword fights just yeah. don't tend to happen anymore. No. Um, and then there's the CG, eh? Which yeah. is like fine, I think, a lot of the time, but it's far from fine during the last act chase scene Oof. involving carts. And I wanted to like that scene because it was trying to evoke Ben Hur, which is mm. a film I obviously enjoy. Not the, not the 2016 version, because we've talked about that. <laughs> um, but every time they cut to a close-up of the actors in the car, it looks terrible, eh? Yeah. I would have preferred 50s-era back projection to whatever they were doing, you know? Yeah. Um, and so many horses ride straight through walls, which I don't think a horse would do. Yeah, yeah, there's... <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah, I think the horse would stop. It's not a I mean. car. Yeah, it's not a car, <laughs> eh? You know, it doesn't do, like, jumps and skids yeah. and, you know... They're sentient creatures, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, they've got thoughts. Eh? And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I think when they say a wall coming up, they're going to go, ooh, yeah. uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, and they just kind of shrug off the wall as well. Just totally. keep going in a straight just, line. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like when Jason Voorhees comes through doors, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're just like, horses are like that. The script throws in a Harvey Dent slash Two-Face late in the piece reversal, which yeah. you'll see coming as soon as the character screams at, you know, do-gooders, you'll ruin my political career. I was like, okay. Yeah. I see where this is going. Yeah. Uh, it casts Tim Minchin as Friar Tuck as a comedy relief and then just fails to deliver a laugh. Right. But, you know, like he's obviously the Simon Pegg role, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, and, totally. Um, I didn't remember anyone laughing at a single joke he said, you know, no, like in our but, audience. And maybe it's my bias, but I think the villain for hire, Ben Mendelsohn, once again delivers another decent performance in a movie undeserving of such a performance from anybody. Yeah, look, I think this is a, a cast I have no real issues with because that charismatic talent folk... I've seen in other things in which I've enjoyed watching them in, but they're not well served by this film at all. No. I mean, Egerton is, I think, possibly too boyish to be the man who rebels against the sheriff. Uh, Eve Hewson's Marion has an accent. Her accent, I don't know what. You well, know, I assume she's that, Irish, right? Totally, because she's um, Bono's daughter, yeah. right? But there's a scene at the end where she's speaking American, mm. clearly speaking in an American accent near the end of the film, and yeah. I'm thinking, were you doing that earlier? or is this She wasn't coming? in the opening scene. No. That opening scene, she's hard on the Irish. Yeah, totally. And then, of course, she ends up with Janie Dornan, spoilers, um, after mm. 20 minutes, and you're like, yeah. oh, well, he's Irish, so okay, so there's a lot of Irish people in it, and it kind of makes sense that come yeah, into yeah. Nottingham, whatever. But then, yeah, then her accent just disappears and comes back, and it's just like... Yeah, yeah. It's a, they should have probably figured that out. I don't know. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I also love with her, like, the, the opening scene, her eyes are there, you know, like, ninja, yeah. you know, kind of scarf, her eyes there. But she's got just cleavage. Cleavage, well. yeah. So you're like, oh, okay, really sneaking under the radar. There was a creepy moment, I forgot, it was really brief, but there was a creepy, like, oh, you're about to be raped moment mm. at one point too, which I felt was, I mean, so unnecessary, yeah. you know, and just weirded me, creeped me out, you know. Yeah. Um, it was over pretty fast too, but... Yeah, but jeepers! I mean, yeah, it's kind of unnecessary in a film like that. 
you know, something that's going for a pretty broad appeal. You know, yeah, right? and to oh. just for no real purpose. But then again, that happens in uh, Prince of Thieves as well, right? So, oh, the whole sh- thing is he's trying to consummate the marriage. You know, I oh, totally. Totally, I I just feel like ah, oh, it's twenty eighteen now. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but you're right about Ben Mendelsohn. Like he's been the big bad in both the first installments of Ready Player and Rogue, mm. and here is the sheriff naturally. Yeah, and and I get it. He is good at this bad guy thing, and there's a nice moment where Rob turns a secret that the sheriff had shared with him and turns mm. it back on him as a barb. And I like Mendelsohn's like thin smile of acknowledgement. It's quite yeah. nicely played, but he's not given a lot to play with. I wish his threat to boil someone in their own piss at a fraction of the devilish wit of Alan Rickman ordering an end to Christmas, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just that, not not that sort of film. Yeah. As much as it wants him to be that character, yeah. it's not giving him anything to do that with. No, and he's not fun enough. He's kind of like a, a, a tyrant without any fun. You know, he should be a bit more Alan Rickman or yeah. Captain Hook or whatever, you know, like it should be that kind of thing. Yeah, he's just yeah. not written that way and it's a yeah. real shame, I think. If you're going to have a twirly moustache villain, then this is the film to do it in, you know. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> I would love opportunity. that. You know, and Mendelssohn, I'm sure, is perfectly capable yeah, of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they've got the right guy. I, I, just, I just think he's playing too many of these roles. Yeah. He even looks like the character from Rogue One. Oh, you know? completely. Not convinced I understand his plot either. No. Yeah, I don't want to reveal it, but it's yeah confused. Yeah. It's difficult to blame the film for embracing the woke folk tale approach. Right. Because crusades, redistribution of wealth, corrupt institutions are all ripe for mirroring in today's political climate. And if they aren't addressed or just merely skipped over, then the film will probably receive a roasting for that too. Yeah. So I can kind of understand where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I mean, obviously they didn't nail actually addressing these issues. No. But, you know, if they had just ignored that with themes that were yeah. there, I could see how that would be a problem, especially the Crusade stuff. Yeah. But the film has absolutely zero subtlety. Considering the updated fashion the film throws at us, I was waiting for the sheriff to put on like a red trucker hat with Make Nottingham Great Again. <laughs> I railed about this, I think, in the last podcast, that subtext is just seems to be this lost art in mainstream cinema. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like you could tell a story in a very straight fashion and it would still have those echoes of what's going on in society yeah, today. that's right. Because it does. In some ways, it's almost, that's the beauty of the Robin Hood story, is it's quite a timeless one. Yeah. You know, so you don't need to layer it thick. No. In the way that they have done. Yeah. Um, I was reading on IMDb, apparently the film set and costume designers got instructions to make everything one-third historically correct, one-third contemporary, and one-third futuristic. To right. get that, you know, that uniquely crappy look they got. <laughs> Um, so I guess that you know that explains that boneheaded decision. Yeah, well, the action is sorely missing any pacing or panache. I felt it does that slowed down mid-air jumps. Yeah, followed by a rush of blinding arrows flying with metronomic regularity, but it never wows or builds. Instead, we just crash in and out of action set pieces, often without any context. Yeah, and none of those set pieces were memorable. Like I don't remember. Like the one that you actually hinted towards was the car chase, yeah. and then maybe the ones where the Horses are running along at the top. Yeah. And they still didn't quite nail that. Um, but that's it. And, and I'm yeah. just like, it's, yeah, it's I, I weird. Thought, I thought at the beginning when we had those um, scenes in, in the East that they might be onto something that's, yeah. uh, I don't know. Like Black least, Hawk Down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, a, yeah. I mean, it's, it's terrible to say. I thought, well, at least there's a functional muscularity to those yeah. fight scenes. Even if they're not absorbing because at that stage I don't really know who anyone is. So I don't really, I'm not invested or caring. Yeah. And also, I was obviously quite struck by the historical inaccuracies. Yeah. But that's the bag. That's what you're going for. But it never really builds from that. Or, or, no. or like you say, it, just, it never really develops a, a, a visual sense 
No. I, I guess. And not a good-looking action choreography either, you yeah. know? It's trying for, like, Assassin's Creed meets John Wick or something. Yeah. Um, and not really landing it. This film sneeringly dismisses the very legend that it's based on. Mm. And this isn't your granddaddy's Robin Hood. No, it's not. It's not, unfortunately. It's it's no one's. It, it's all yours, so enjoy it. You know, like, it's the it's this idea of each generation gets its Robin Hood. Right. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, eight years ago, it was Russell Crowe's one, which yeah. I still haven't seen. Then now it's this one. I mean, even the 91 or 1990, whatever it was, the uh, Costner, Costner one. one. Mm. You know, we had Robin of Sherwood, which yeah. is still amazing. Yeah, that's my one. Yeah, it's my one as well. It's one I identify with. But also, we, you know, the Errol Flynn one lived through, you know, for, yeah. for 50 years, yeah. you know, before we got to it. Yeah. And we still it still gets played now. Yeah, it's still uh, great. For a reason. Yeah. They just did the Dark Knight plot as well, so. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's Batman without a compelling backstory. Ultimately, I just don't get why anyone would tell a story they so clearly hate. Every part of this movie screams to me that the filmmakers approach the photo as if they didn't want to get their hands dirty touching it. Uh, they have so little respect for the narrative that they bastardized it to death. Yes, there's a guy called Robin. But have you noticed they hardly ever call him that? They call him Rob, oh, uh, which annoys the heck out of me. Um, and yeah, there's a Marion, and yes, Rob does rob from the rich and shoot arrows along the way. But there's no little John. There's a guy called John. Thank you very much. Mm. There's a there's a Will Scarlet. Though only if you watch the credits to find out that his surname Scarlet. Yeah, this is referred to as Will. A Taku doesn't appear to be a friar, and no merry men. There isn't even a forest, mm. which is frustrating to me. And. Uh, that is apparently being held back as some sort of a treat for the viewers, a little Easter egg, you know, what you can expect in the sequel. That will never happen. Yeah. It, it felt like the filmmakers were doing, and it, it was like it was a school assignment they had to do. It was like, yeah. you know, here you go. Do you got Robin Hood. Oh, okay, I've got to make a film out of that. Okay, I'll try my yeah. best. I don't like Robin Hood. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wish I got something else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fox taking, got to just get something done. Yeah, I wanted to get Batman, but I got, I've got Robin yeah, Hood. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Oh, my bird. <laughs> we kind of knew that it was going in, right? Oh, a lot we, of the reason we did it. We did. And the funny thing is um, I wanted to see this because I wanted to know how it was. I knew it was going to be terrible, but I, yeah. I wanted to have a look. And I wanted to know because I do love the story. Yeah. But but interestingly, you said something which is the same applies to me, which is I haven't seen the Russell Crowe Ridley Scott version. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really interesting. That one I just looked at and thought, uh, you know, I can handle watching someone do a big budget, disastrous over the top version like this, yeah. But the last thing I want is a Dow Grimm one, yeah, that's right, uh, which is what I've heard that one is, and right. it, it looks like. And I just don't want to. I don't want to slog through Robin Hood. No, I can watch a bad one like this and have a bit of a laugh about it, but yeah. I don't want to watch a, a grim, boring Robin Hood. Yeah, and this has been horrifically reviewed as well. This got like crushed. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. I saw totally, afterwards totally. after written my review, which, um, yeah, unsurprisingly. But it got really savaged, and I was just like, yeah. "Wow!" It's, but it's, it's it's not it's not bad enough to to kind of kick back and watch in any way. You know what I no, mean? No, not in an entertainingly bad no. way. No, um, no, you're quite right. It's made very little money, obviously. So it's and and really, King Arthur um, from last year should have been the clue that this was going to happen. Yeah. All right, now it's time. For the Spoiler Alert 2018 Awards. Oh, the most so, important awards yeah, got, of the season. <laughs> it is. We've got our tuxes on, the red carpet's been rolled out. Mm-hmm. Um, our un- Unfortunately, our presenter, we had to let him go. He made yeah. some comments on Twitter a couple of years back. Yeah, um, <laughs> so this is where we look back on our year and our own personal feelings about films we've watched and hand out a few gongs. So yeah. would you like to kick it off, Duncan? Okay, cool. 
So Gut Punch of the Year award goes to Hereditary. Oh, cool, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure if there was a single more difficult moment in 2018 cinema to absorb than the one that happens midway through Hereditary. Both the literal and immediate impact of the event and its c- continued effects throughout the rest of the runtime. What's more is that it manages the magic trick of both coming out of nowhere and simultaneously building onto existing suspense and danger. Hereditary was a divisive film, one of those that had near universal critical praise, an impressive box office, but also left many mainstream moviegoers scratching their heads as if they'd been duped. It also contains, quite simply, one of Tony Collette's greatest performances from a career of great performances. And I'm hoping Collette is rewarded with some accolades, but fear she may disappear down the deep well of ignored horror performances. Um, but that moment, the one yep. in the middle, you know what I'm talking about. And I I'm, certainly do. For anyone who's... Listening in a scene, you know what I'm talking about. Anyone who hasn't, yeah, we're, we're not, not going to spoil it. Um, it's so beautifully handled because, like you say, it seems to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and then after it happens, we stay there for so long. Yeah. And we and you know, I think a lot of films would have backed away from that. Yeah. And like fade to black, next day sort of thing. Yeah. It hangs in there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that quickly leads me on to my second gut punch of the year award, and that goes to Mudbound. Uh, from the opening scene, a quiet sense of creeping dread permeates throughout the film, and it's a tough watch when a character's fate is meted out in such a confronting yet inevitable fashion. Mudbound is one of those films where hope is an illusion, an oasis so irresistibly tempting to believe in and so predictably a mirage. It's also a film that sticks in your memory, one where the emotions of the characters are controlled by their environments. Jason Mitchell and Carrie Mulligan are the standout performers, while 2018's ubiquitous character actor Jason Clark does a really good job of like the simple farmer who wants nothing more than things to stay as they always have been. Uh, yeah, but again, there's something that happens towards the end of that film, and you're just like, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, you're kind of hoping against hope that it won't happen, and it does. So, yeah. So, they're the two kind of ones where it's just like, okay. Um, but good films, that's why I'm bringing them up, because yep. both of them were really um, worth watching. Yeah. yeah. While, while we're talking about Jason Clark, uh, it's time for my first award, which is the Trailer of the Year Award. So when I first saw images for 2019's Pet Cemetery remake, I felt underwhelmed. Everything looked too bright. The cat looked wrong. I mean, that's just not how I imagine church to look, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the trailer, man, when I saw the trailer, the haunting, soft, papery drums, which is a sound you don't hear very often, really effective. The violin stabs, the kids in animal masks, and the not-at-all reassuring tone of John Lithgow's warnings um, had me reconsidering this remake. I've watched it several times since, and each time I'm left with the, the cold shivers, which is a hell of a difficult thing to do, mm. which is why Pet Cemetery is my favourite trailer of 2018. Great. Or rather, co-favourite. Oh. Because at the end of the year, uh, I saw the trailer for Clint Eastwood's latest, The Mule. Um, the trailer opens with Eastwood, peak old-age leathery, uh, pulled over by a cop whilst he's trying to hide stacks of drugs in the back of his old pickup truck. Um, the tension is compelling right at the beginning. It's yep. like a little short thriller right there. Uh, from there, a mournful piano kicks in, riding on a growly eastward monologue of regret and sorrow. It's such a riveting stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Such a perfectly crafted two and a half minutes. So I'd watch the hell out of both of those films based on those trailers. Great. Yeah, I'll have to check both. Well, I've seen the Pet Cemetery one, but I'll have to check yeah, out the, the Mule Pet one. Pet Cemetery one I just found so effective. Mm. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I love the sound of those drums too. Right. Yeah, so I'll have to go it. back and watch it. Yeah, no, really, really got me. That's good. So, Style of the Year award goes to Mandy. Director Panos Cosmatos knows what he's doing. 
red font from Italian horror, prog rockers King Crimson replete with their own billing, playing a haunting melody on the soundtrack, sweeping shots of forest straight out of Twin Peaks, Nicolas Cage with a chainsaw. This is like the first couple of minutes of Mandy, and it only, <laughs> get, and it only gets better. The cinematography is marvellous throughout, recreating a Dylan Dog comic meets Hellraiser aesthetic. The editing is wondrous from the ethereal dream of Andrea Riesborough meeting Linus Roach to the melding of their faces in a Lynchian drug-induced dream sequence. The film was abound with great moments, some of which should be captured on canvas, comic books, or the side of a panel van in the 70s. Mandy knows what it is reaching for, and it delivers it to the audience with a serious amount of style. Yeah, i got to admit, Nick Cage hefting that great silver axe is going to make a mean um, tattoo on my arm, <laughs> like a sleeve. Yeah, yeah that's gonna be awesome. Yeah, totally. Look, um, that leads me really easily into my next award, too, which is my best time in a cinema award, mm-hmm. which, of course, goes to Mandy. Not only did I spend it in the company of my co-host, which mm-hmm. is also a treat, but I watched it with a rabid crowd of freaks at the lovely Hollywood in Avondale, wearing our Nick Cage masks. We got to revel in the unashamed, blood-soaked, arthouse revenge B-movie, shrieking when Cage snapped a neck, giggling seconds later when he snorted a handful of cocaine, and smiling insanely as he forged a silver battle axe. It was a perfect film to watch with the devoted audience ready for a cult offering, and the only experience I had similar to it was watching the excellent and bonkers B-action film Upgrade, uh, which I loved, and which I think, not coincidentally, I also saw at the Hollywood. Great. You know, I'm finding that's the cinema I've been to about four or five times this year, which Mm -hmm. is more than I probably would have in the last year. Yeah. Um, And it's because of films like this, and it's because of the atmosphere and the fact that they're putting these films on, and they get such a good crowd. Yeah. So I think, you know, and then it'll be interesting to see how often I go back next year as well, and I'm sure it'll, you know, it'll just keep building. Yeah, well, I'm happy to say I popped my cherry with uh, Mandy at the Hollywood Cinema. Oh, right, cool, cool. I saw there, and yeah, fantastic. It was so good. Great. Yeah, Uh, really good fun. Yeah, they they play a few of the um um the strange film component of the film festivals mm. out there now. So I saw a couple there, I think, this year. Yeah. Um yeah, it's great. Such mm. a nice little cinema. Well that goes nicely into my um best big scream experience of the year, which Mandy was right up there, but the top one for me was Mission Impossible Fallout. Right. Uh, nothing at the cinema was more exhilarating this year for me than Mission Impossible Fallout with two killer set pieces that will go down in action history as well as a brutal bathroom fight and a frenetic foot chase Fallout staked its claim as one of the action films of the decade while the narrative was twisted in knots that ultimately traded in double and triple crosses to the point of meaninglessness the film produced action at such a breathless pace and spectacular scale that it was a joy to watch Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise also killed off a main character brought back another introduced the offspring of someone from the first film 22 years ago, and perhaps most impressively, delivered the imminently mimicable sight of Henry Cavill reloading his arms. Uh, perhaps the highest praise I can extend to it is that I'm actually really excited to see it for a second time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Knowing what's coming up, I'm actually really looking forward to it. And yeah. that's, you know, you can't say that about too many films. Yeah, man, I tell you, it really hooked me in with that Paris motorbike chase. Yeah. You know? Uh, but there's so much great stuff in that film. It was such a good time in the cinema as well. Yeah. So that probably leads on to my next one as well, which is Wounding of a Behemoth Award goes to Solo. As regular listeners will know, Solo was one of those rare, enjoyable experiences on this podcast, where, which is where Simon and I disagree about a film. Mm. Uh, I quite enjoy those because it doesn't happen that often. No, no, it's rare. It's rare. Um, look, I enjoy the hell out of Solo, Simon less so. But my enjoyment was all to do with context. It was a rebound from the alarming experience I had of watching The Last Jedi, 
create layer upon layer of dissatisfaction like a lasagna of feces. I felt like I knew all of Solo's disappointments long before I walked into the cinema. So they weren't jumping out at me in the dark like a 50s horror monster the way The Last of Jedi appeared to. But Solo's tepid box office and critical reaction meant that it became the film that finally blocked the behemoth, stunned the slayer. They got the juggernaut jittering and various other awkwardly illiterate illusions. Say what you want about the prequels, but they destroyed the box office while Solo hit with all the accuracy of a stormtrooper on Endor. Yeah, it, it's funny. I watched, As you know, I've watched Solo since, and I enjoyed it more the second time around. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why that is. I think part of it is um, the first time around, I just... And, and I still don't really get that that's Solo, Han Solo himself, yeah. that character. But the second time around, I was able to go, ah, oh, it's a space adventure in the Star Wars galaxy. Mm. And that was it. So that made it a more rewarding watch the second time around. Um, and I wonder if, you know, you're saying that this film is the, the one that gave the franchise jitters. Mm. And, and it's hard to know whether that's a result of the last Jedi feelings, like people who, yeah. who were disappointed by the last Jedi, so didn't show up to for solo yeah maybe i mean I don't, I, I don't know if that's a thing or not i mean yeah. how do you even know but yeah it is interesting and it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out long term obviously there's tv shows to come but whether yeah. it's going to affect it already has affected their movie releasing yeah and i just it, it seemed almost impervious to it up to that point you know what i mean yeah that, i mean you know the rogue one made a billion dollars so surely nothing's going to stop this for a while and sure enough yeah it did. Yeah. yeah benefit of being second one out of the gate though eh? yeah after after, after first one that People pretty much universally loved it, even if I didn't care for The Force Awakens. Mm. So, surprisingly moving award goes to Batman and Bill. Last year, I gave this award to George Lazenby's raconteur recollections of becoming Bond, when he cried, wondering whatever became of a lost love. This year, the surprisingly moving award goes to another pop culture icon, Batman, and his long-denied co-creator, the enigmatic Bill Finger. Bob Kane had long been accepted as and fought to be recognised as the sole creator of the Dark Knight, but it was Bill Finger who came up with that term, the Dark Knight. He also created Batman's look, his Batcave, Batmobile, the Joker, the mythology of Robin, and Batman himself, like the parents gunned down in Crime Alley. All of it was Bill Finger. Wow. Batman and Bill tells us a sad story of Bill dying in poverty, interred at a potter's field with a nameless tombstone, and how he came to be there. But the film then offers a crusader for justice, a detective, an author, Mark Taylor, appropriately named Mark Taylor Nobleman, who will stop at nothing to prove Finger's contribution and fight for the long-deceased man's rights against the might of DC Comics. It is a moving experience to see him track down and convince Finger's scattered family to come to grips with what they have to endure to get justice. Uh, it was really moving because of, not just of Bill Finger, but then like, of his son and then his granddaughter. You know what I mean? Like, So you just kind of yeah. keep following this family to where they got to now. And they had their own offshoots of stories. You know what I mean? So it just moved away from DC Comics. And they were also trying to do this thing, which I didn't realize had never happened before, which was uh, to change the uh, banner on a comic book of creation. Right, so wow. people had fought to get money. You know, yeah. I think uh, the guys who had done Superman had fought fought to get money, but they had always had their names associated with it. But no one had ever changed the byline, essentially, of a of a who yeah. created yeah. Uh, things. And this was the first one. Cool. And uh, yeah, and the guy, the guy nobleman who's who wrote, you know, who investigated it and did this book, and it, the dude is just uh, unstoppable. You know, yeah. like he 
cannot be deterred and he has this sense of justice there which is amazing but yeah it was genuinely moving you know and just to kind of see he was convincing them no you need to fight for this you need to yeah. get up and fight and they were not they kind of long given up you know unsure of how to move but yeah it was, it's a really it's a nice little story and you just feel really sorry for the guy because he cre- you know I mean as a kid I love Batman so much and then to realise what he had done yeah you know what I mean and yeah, that the, sounds like a lion's share of the work too yeah it's a massive amount of work and Bob Kane had even gone back and kind of created all of this false information false evidence right years after like 20, 30, 40 years afterwards yeah 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 so yeah and gone back and said oh no no look here's his design see it's even noted 1935 and blah 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 and they're like it's all a bit convenient wow yeah so he kind of you know they're like, well, they should carbon date that because then you'd be able to figure out when it was, ex- you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's quite a fascinating story to watch. So. Amazing. Man. Yeah, it's good. Look, my esteemed colleague and I are not working film critics, obviously. For one, we don't watch every film that comes out. Uh, when it comes out, we pick and choose, mostly paying to see films we want to see. And then devoting whole months to, I don't know, Idolapino films or the back catalogue of Hong Kong action master John Woo or Frank Capra films or just whatever takes our fancy. Which means we don't see a lot of really terrible films in a year. I mean, I haven't seen famously not great releases like Gotti, you know, or <laughs> the final Fifty Shades film, or in fact, any Fifty Shades film, <laughs> or Clint Eastwood's The 1517 to Paris, which I hear is pretty woeful. Right. Um, but we did see the icky Eli Roth remake of Death Wish, a film so dodgy in its pro gunplay politics at a time, folks, when America was suffering through a wave of mass shootings that I found myself wishing for the subtlety and nuance of Michael Winner's original. But I don't know. At least Death Wish had Vincent D'Onofrio, and occasionally Roth's cheeky horror roots broke free, and I got to have like a moment of fun, uh, which is far more than I can say for Robin Hood, <laughs> which managed to finish my cinema-going year on a low. So I'd say that was the worst film I saw this year, in a cinema. Right. Um, yeah, well, that brings me nicely on to worst film of the year, which for me was Death Wish, actually. Yeah, I understand that. And, and, and as you say, I mean, reviewing this piece of trash was the kind of film we've realised we enjoy because it makes for a fun time podcasting. Yeah. Uh, but the, without that outlet, um, say, like my poor wife who I dragged along to it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> then Death Wish is about as unwatchable as 2018 gets. A film of Death Wish's moral certitude and social point of view means that it sticks longer and deeper in the craw than merely just a bad film. Mm. which you can kind of brush off a lot easier than that. When expectations of a film start at zero, then that score plunges into the red when your remake favorably exhumes the memory of an already problematic and exploitative original. I mean, Eli Roth is outdirected by Michael Winner. He is. He <laughs> absolutely is, which is a shocking thought. It is, it is crazy if you're familiar with yeah. Michael Winner's work. And Bruce Willis delivers a performance that we are just wishing for the pathos and subtlety of Charles freaking Bronson. Yeah. You know, when we did this, we did the remake. Yeah. We did the remake in the original review. Yeah. Yeah. It made me enjoy 74s a lot more. 74 takes some time to build mm. to, to where it gets to. Yeah. Not this one. Uh-huh. This one's there in a heartbeat. And look, I agree. It's probably worse than Robin Hood. But yeah. as we've talked about many times, Robin Hood is my favorite story. Yeah. So, yeah. so for me to see it, Desecrated like that makes it the worst film I saw this year. Yeah. Um, but I think if I wasn't so attached to that material, then yeah, I probably would have said Death Wish. Yeah, yeah. I think Death Wish, well, like when I just scanned my memory for what was the mm. worst film, Death Wish popped up so quickly. So easily. Yeah, I didn't even have to like look back at my notes from former podcasts. Yeah, 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 I just yeah. was like, oh yeah, I saw Death Wish this year. Oh yeah, that film, <laughs> that film. Look, easily my favourite performance this year came from a performer... I'd kind of slightly sadly underrated, I think. 
perhaps it's because I'd watched Tony Collette most recently in middling TV fare, uh, like the bland hostages, that I'd forgotten how good she can be. But in Hereditary, she's a heartbreaking powerhouse, battered by grief and both a victim and a terrifying antagonist. She's the centre of a shattering film. She delivers a crushing line, which I won't reveal here, that had the audience I, I, I was with gasping with shock. And it's a line that could have been mishandled, I think. So easily slipping into kind of a melodrama. Uh, her character's journey is this hope, hopeless spiral into darkness, and Kaleida's dragged along, clawing and fighting the whole way in one of the truly great horror movie performances. What was interesting is once I kind of wrote down my thoughts about this and then I did a little bit of investigation, this is one that I found a lot of um, a lot of people on the internet didn't like. Some people loved it. Like, you mean her or the movie? No, no, the movie. So some, a lot of people were just like, oh, this was, you know, and really, really didn't like it. But what was interesting is that how many of those really negative reviews said, look, the acting's fantastic. Tony Collette's amazing in it, but I hated, 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 hated this film. You know what I mean? Right. So they, but they go, virtually every single one of them went out of their way to go to acknowledge how good she was yeah. in it. So that probably says a lot about a film, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because usually you just throw everything onto the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, there's big diatribes from people who, you know, didn't like this film. Yeah. Um, but they still pretty Single much her. 100% acknowledge You would that. have to, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you'd almost damage your own credibility just objectively oh, by saying that. You know, I mean, I, I tell them to think about award ceremonies and stuff so much, but I so hope her name's up there, right? Oh, it should be. You know. It's one of those performances that just grabs you. Yeah. And, and, and then there's a few of them in film history that are like that. Yeah. Um, and they're actually kind of few and far between. I, I've always said, you know, Alan Bernstein's and and Requiem for a Dream is yeah. one of those oh, God. films. So great. Yeah. And even if you don't like that film, you've got to acknowledge that's an amazing performance. Yeah. I, I thought that about a lot of it. I mean, I even think Ed Norton and American History X is like, yeah. that's a problematic film and like how it's constructed and all yeah. the rest of it. But his performance is so electric in that, regardless yeah, of what yeah. you think of that film. He's amazing. I, I just hope the fact that it came out so long ago now, you yeah. know, in the year, and also it's the horror ghetto in a respect. Yeah. And I hope that doesn't colour people's, you know, yeah. um, perceptions of the film when it comes to that time. And and I'm looking at Get Out, I guess, and its success last year and thinking, yeah. oh, hopefully some of that, you know, yeah. some of that change in perception will, will hold for Hereditary and, yeah. for, and for Tony Collette, obviously. Yeah, she definitely deserves it. Yeah. And well, that moves on to... Um, Breakout star of the year for me was Cynthia Ervo for Bad Times at the El Royale and Widows. In many ways, the moral compass of the film, Ervo's performance in Bad Times at the El Royale is pitch perfect. She appears both innocent and world-weary. Her singing voice cuts through all of the violence, threats, guilt and lies that swirl around the titular hotel. Her finest moments are across from Jeff Bridges, two thoroughly likeable actors dancing around the truth of their characters. In Widows, Ervo plays a peripheral character who becomes vital and brings a dynamic and focused edge to a group of amateur thieves. It's remarkable that at the age of 31, the talented stage star Ervo is only now making a film debut, but Bad Times and Widows, as her first two films, mean she has announced her arrival in considerable style, and her upcoming performance as a famous US slavery abolitionist, Harriet Tubman, is bound to be one to watch. Awesome. So, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Widows yet. Yeah, and, and it was so funny. I went, went and saw Widows, uh, Lucia and I saw it, and as soon as she popped up, we both just nudged each other, said, yeah, you know, from bad times. Yeah. And you know, we just she, you know, she looks completely different, but she's so great. And in bad times, she's just oh, just like, where have you been? Like, how are you? Yeah. Just, you, you, you're an incredible voice, and yeah. you're really, you, you know, like you're just nailing it acting-wise. And uh, yeah, and that literally the first her first two debuts. So 
yeah, be um, um, definitely one to watch out for. All right, so it's uh, time for me for my uh, to hand out my last award, which is of course the film of the year. So look, I love horror movies for many reasons. They can be funny, clever, twisted. They can be roller coaster rides wanting nothing more than to make you jump. And on very rare occasions, they can dig deep into what really scares us to tell a tale of the deep-rooted fears that we carry with us. And that's something my favourite film of 2018 does with precision. Hereditary is a story of guilt and unresolved poisonous family dysfunction that features a towering Tony Collette performance, which we talked about, but it's also an assured debut from director Ari Aster, who delivers the most shocking screen death I've seen in years. And then has the nerve to stick around and let the horrendous results play out where lesser directors might have given its audience some relief. Uh, performances all around are superb with Alex Wolfe as the tormented son carrying an unimaginable burden and Millie Shapiro making a really unforgettable film debut. Uh, yeah. Um, but what's really struck me about Hereditary and one of the reasons I admire it so much is that it's a horror film that wants to hurt you and will not let you off easy on that either. Uh, this is no roller coaster horror film. It's a falling elevator straight down into madness and pain. And I loved it for that. And I think that's, you know, emotional reactions are so hard to get in film. It's hard for me to to be made to cry, you know, mm. or to get genuine laughter that's, you know, rolls out of you. And similarly, it's hard to really hurt hurt you in a way that's, you know, gutting and emotional. And mm. it's, like you say, it's the gut punch. And the Hereditary does that a couple of times. Yeah. One incredibly impactfully that we mm. spoke about earlier but i think there's a couple of moments that film which really hit me hard mm. and for that you know I, I haven't had that happen this year in cinema so yeah yeah definitely my favorite film of the year oh great yeah well, we've spoken a lot about hereditary and uh, yeah it's come up a bit yeah and it's uh it definitely i mean it's unforgettable so that's the thing mm. isn't it you know I, I really enjoyed it too but um yeah it's uh it's full on you know, like sure. emotionally full on. So, yeah, prepare yourself for that. Yeah, yeah. my boss at work said his um had his fifteen year old son and another kid wanted to watch some horror movies, and the other kid hadn't seen a horror movie before. Right, and the son was like, "Oh, let's watch Hereditary." And um, uh, Jens ran in the room and said, "No, well, let's watch something else." Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there are horror films we watch as a kid, and you know they've got this reputation, yeah, like The Exorcist or something, yeah, you know. But you're not going to have any fun with Hereditary. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's not that film. No. You know, it's not like a ride. It's not like you get through, you finish The Exorcist and go, wow, wow, that was a real, you know? Yeah. But no, not this film. <laughs> no, Kids not. don't want to be watching this. No. <laughs> uh, well, look, my final award, there's, there's a couple of films I loved. I love Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. Um, I really love Mandy. Oh. And both of those films were fantastic. And as far as time in the cinema, they were great. Um, but the... This isn't my best film of the year, but this is my best documentary of the year award, right. which would tie in with those two films for my favourite yeah. moments in the cinema this year. And that goes to Three Identical Strangers. Uh, perhaps no film this year was as gripping for me from first frame to the last as Three Identical Strangers. An unbelievably true story of three brothers reunited that has twists and turns every half hour that are frankly incredible. This was the highlight of the New Zealand International Film Festival with a sold-out civic audience. The people on the screen were distinct personalities that were impossible not to empathise with as they went from shock to disbelief to joy, anger and sadness. As I said when I reviewed this back in August or July, whenever we did it, it is a film best viewed with knowing as little as possible about events that unfold. Right. So I can't really kind of go into yeah, what yeah, I loved no, about that's it. Great, that's great. But I really recommend hunting this one out. This was, you know, just had the audience you know, gasping and mm. same thing, you know, you're just laughing. You're, you're yeah. not quite crying, but you're just like, 
And, and what happens is just unbelievable. Like, if yeah. you wrote it as a drama, it's, it's the old cliche. You just never believe it. But yeah. Completely unbelievable. You'd say there's so much contrivance, coincidence, and it's just, uh, you know, none of this is, is, is plausible, but it's all true. Wow. And, um, yeah, I really recommend checking out Three Identical Strangers and literally knowing as little as possible when you go in. Yeah. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. All right, welcome to the very last Tree of Woe for 2018. Now's the time we wipe the Tree of Woe clean, tearing down the now desiccated remains of the tree sacrifices uh, from the last year and picking out the victims we felt was the most deserving of woeness in the last 12 months and hauling their poor bodies back onto the tree as our ultimate Tree of Woe for 2018. So, Duncan, who is your ultimate 2018 Tree of Woe? Um, well, I mean, you know, we've we've had to take Adam Sandler up and down so many times over the years, but you know, poor guy, poor guy, <laughs> he's just it's a skeleton now. My woest of woes this year isn't a person or a film. There isn't anyone to nail up on the tree of woe to contemplate their crimes. It's just an empty hole, a gaping wound that will take quite a lot of time to heal. Because while there have been some big names lost this year that made their mark on the silver screen. There is one loss that hit me harder than any, one that has gone under the radar slightly, and that is the demise of Turner Classic Movies Channel from the TV screens of New Zealand. Uh. It has been hanging on by its fingernails these last few years, and finally it has received that last push. All of those mini documentaries, retrospectives, behind-the-scenes pieces, the themed marathons of actors like Clark Gable, Elizabeth Taylor, Errol Flynn, but also lesser-known actors like Robert Montgomery and Richard Widmark, all of them lost like tears in the rain. Time to die. TCM's place has been taken on the Sky platform by Sky Movies Vintage. And rest assured, they have decent golden age films on there. But there is a charm to TCM, a care taken with programming, and an attention to detail that is specific and unique. They had their Star of the Month spotlight, as well as guest programmers from Spike Lee to Deborah Winger. They played so many films from our favourite long-lost studio, RKO, and even silent movies from as early as the 1910s. Just as the channel's most famous host, Robert Osborne, passed away last year, this year his beloved channel has passed just last week from our screens. But as with Osborne before, we here at Spoiler Alert salute you, Turner Classic Movies. You have enriched our viewing experience and catered to the cinephiles of New Zealand for a long time. But your demise is my woest of woes this year. Oh, that is a deep, low-felt woe. That is, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's kind of a, a woe you just can't kind of laugh off, you know, yeah. and have, it, no, have no, a good no. time. It's not Sandler up on there. That's yeah, because that was a beautifully curated channel. You yeah. Know? It really was. Yeah. It was, um, you know, there was a real love to the selection and yeah. the way it was put together. Um, yeah. yeah, and for classic movies, it was just unbeatable. Fantastic. And, um, it was so good. And um, I, I know... You know, there's been talk of it disappearing for at least a couple of years now, and yeah. then they finally did it. And I actually recorded the last um, film on TCM. I still got it on the Sky thing. Oh, what so, was it? Uh, the Flame and the Arrow. So, right. um, yeah, which I think it was it might even be inspired by Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, sounds um, like it. That's um, that's really sad news. I mean, it's not um, unexpected, I guess, but ah, uh, it's no. just a turning point. We've seen so many things happen in the last year or two years. You know video on closing down we've talked about it on the podcast you've even thrown some up on the tree of woe you know even websites disappearing all those things are going by the wayside and it's digital tv or death you know download a file from a torrent site or something or otherwise you're never going to see that again yeah. if you're lucky you're lucky you can find it yeah uh yeah look for me this was a pretty easy choice and i'm gonna really coming right off the back of what you've been talking about 
Uh, it's the only topic that one way or another has been put on the tree by me more than once in the past 12 months. And that is, of course, the steady ro- erosion of viewing choice. Uh, first legendary film streaming site, Filmstruck, who handled Turner Classics um, content, announced it was closing its doors, or whatever you call doors that only exist online. This wasn't painful news to New Zealand-based spoiler alerters, as Filmstruck was a subscription streaming site unavailable over here. Um, Filmstruck was just judged to be too niche, not enough of a revenue earner, which means, as I think I pointed out at the time, someone on the internet said, Warner's back catalogue of classic films can now make real money by doing what they did before, mouldering away in a vault, unseen and forgotten. This was sad news for US-based film fans, and yet another reminder to the rest of us that classic and independent films are a dying breed, and if they can't make a decent profit, why should anyone care? Uh, Sadly, in particular the studios who own these films, why should they care? As I've said many times before, if you want to keep these old films available, and not just the marquee titles, which will never disappear, DVD and Blu-ray are probably your only answers, because in the end, if you love movies, it's up to you to keep movies alive, because all corporations who own the films, they don't care. And if you wanted further proof that corporations didn't care about film history, look no further than yet another tree of life in the past year where I reported that someone who'd purchased a film on iTunes found that film no longer available because it had been removed from the library. Turns out buy on iTunes really just means rent for a while. Mm. And to top it all off, uh, as Duncan mentioned, if you're an Auckland-based spoiler alerter, you probably already know one of the most cherished icons of film fans, the Video on Video Store, is closing down. All the stock is being sold off. Uh, Duncan and I made some purchases. Uh, while I was writing this, I was staring at a stack of films I bought when I wrote this, um, many of which you not find anywhere else. I'm looking at you, Spider Baby, God Told Me To, and Bride of the Reanimator, and I could never understand why you couldn't find that. I could get uh, I could get beyond the Reanimator and the Reanimator, but could not get the second film in that trilogy. That's great. And now I have it. Yeah, that's um, great. So while it may be that there's never been a better time to easily access content, the payoff is that we're increasingly finding it a worse and worse time for choice, particularly for cinephiles. And that, for me, is the most tree of woe-worthy takeout from a year in movies. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, there's, yeah, there's quite a few points I'd like to pick up on there. I mean, one of them is Vidion. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's listening in Auckland will know. Uh, it's kind of iconic status. It's particularly poignant for me because when I first moved to Auckland in 1996, I lived in Mount Roskill. And I used to walk down there all the time when I first moved to Auckland, get, I yep. had no money, you know what I mean? I go get VHSs, rent them out. It's just wonderful. And it was such a magic place for me um, that to kind of go in there now and it was just getting stripped away, was it's, it's quite sad, you know? Yep. There was, there were, it, when we were in there, we weren't in there very long, like maybe like 40 minutes or yep. something. And there's so many people coming in just going, oh, no. Yeah. You know, like they had no idea. Yep. There was one woman who was coming back and she was returning her DVD. Yeah, yeah. And the woman said, oh, well, I'll waive your late fees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's like, thanks, you yeah. know. And then she went and bought some DVDs, yep, you know, yep. but she had no idea. And so, um, yeah, so that that's, you know, it's passage of time, but that's still a little bit heartbreaking. I it kind of I kind of detest that in this world of everything being online and, and everything being open, film is just like, well, it's too niche. It's like, well, it should be the reverse yeah, you should be able to get everything. There should be these things should be opening up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than closing down because it's not making enough money. Like that seems like a archaic world of uh, archaic way of looking at the world. You know? Yeah. And I mean, uh, what's it going to do if it's not being watched? I mean, yeah. That's the point of it. Exactly. And the other thing is that um, on the bright side, 
Simon's DVD library is probably yeah. the most extensive one left in Auckland now. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Um, <laughs> Civic Video in Glenfield, um, I follow them on um, right. Facebook because they seem to be the last magnificent holdout. Wow. Just you you beautiful bastards, mm. keep going. Um, yeah. And I don't know how that is. I never I expected them to go under for video on. Yeah. It really surprised me, that order. Um, but, yeah, they're the last videos to on the shore. The second one was uh, Tor Bay, Video Easy Tor Bay, I think. Right. And um, they closed. I bought some movies, obviously. Right. But, yeah, the Civic one in Glenfield still goes. And right. I drive past it often enough to look in the windows and see it's still going. Fills, fills me with happiness. But, yeah. you know, days are numbered. But, but, yeah, go for it, Glenfield uh, Civic. Yeah, we're all rooting for you. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. And so that's spoiler alert for this month and this year. And this year. 2018 done. Yeah, yeah. Hope you guys all had a good year. Yeah. Um, and, Hope we didn't um, bring you down too much with our tree of woe. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a slow march towards the grave yeah. for all of us. If, Happy if, New Year. If somehow you guys can move on and have a good Christmas, that would yeah. be great. That would make me feel at ease. Um, <laughs> well, you know, watch some Christmas films, you know. Get yeah. back. I mean, and, and by Christmas films, I don't mean Christmas themed, you know. Hey. That's great if you do. But just films that mean something to you at Christmas. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Oh, totally. You know, maybe go to a DVD store, maybe, you know. Civic. Civic. Yeah, Civic there you go. So thanks to everyone for listening this year. Yeah. We've loved it. All right. Hey, so the song we're going to go out to is, uh, we've had a brief conversation about this. I'm dead keen on this, man. Uh, Clannard. Yes. The Hooded Man. Robin. The, the Hooded, Hooded Man. man. Dun, dun. Yeah, so um, basically the theme song to my 13-year-old life yeah. um, and, of course, the theme song to the great 80s TV series. Yeah, this is still my favourite interpretation of the Robin Hood. I yeah, think. Me too. I mean, you know, subjectively, uh, it's just uh, I love the series. No, I think objectively. I think if you gave <laughs> me a slide rule and some pens and paper, I could, I could prove it mathematically <laughs> as the best Robin Hood ever. <laughs> I'd happily take that on. Yeah. yeah. But we couldn't find a you know a cool song from um, Taron Egerton's Robin Hood, could we? No. Yeah. Surprised there wasn't something though, you know. Yeah. Oh man, they missed a trick not getting you two to do a song, eh? <laughs> Just like um, Armageddon, you know, when it's like yeah, singing yeah, to his totally. own daughter and stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that would have been really weird and inappropriate. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so guys, enjoy Clannard. Yeah, and uh, enjoy um, the holiday break and the new year, Christmas, and yep. um, we'll see you all in 2019. Yeah, look forward to it. Cheers. scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. 
and call off Christmas.